0: Out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at voiceamericatrn. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com.
2: Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, I've gathered more ponderings from the internal wanderings of my ceaseless mind, woven with poignant writings of others that helped to put them there in the first place, and to help bring about connections that perhaps maybe we have not seen before. I am a voracious reader from natural history, economics, ecology, and psychiatry to a good novel, from authors of The Masters to the likes of Lauren Isley, E.O. Wilson, to Lee Child. I anticipate and wonder at the hidden worlds and lives that live between two covers of bound-together leaves from earthen fibers. It is an ever-continuing desire to learn. Through reading, whether the newspaper, Facebook, to hard-bitten biography, documentary, or fiction, what's important here is that we must retain and maintain the culture of reading. If we do not read, we are closing the door on much of our accessible knowledge base, past history and present abundance that grows by leaps and bounds by the minute, as opposed to the century, decade, or year, as evidenced by our not-so-long-ago past. Since time immemorial, the ability to form words, both speaking and written, has been correctly acknowledged to be man's most outstanding trait. There is an intricate philosophical link, at least in the Western tradition, between language and beliefs and choices, and thus moral reasoning and self-determination. It is through reading and speech that we are uniquely able to gain and transfer knowledge through a set of symbols that can transcend dialect and affiliation of spoken languages. It is through this vast library of earthly studies and the wanderings and ponderings of the human mind and their offerings, whether it be through the well-plotted thriller, mystery, or comedy, to the research of long histories of data and connectivity, through social studies, scientific studies, or the literary arts, that creates our human library. And through our language, we have venues, platforms, and forums, like this talk show, to exchange ideas which lead to social growth, without which we as individuals would be sorely lacking for connection to one another in different times, space, and places. In Dean Koontz's recent Odd Thomas sequel, Deeply Odd, I agree with Odd's thoughts, or is it Koontz's, when saying... I usually spare myself from watching the daily news and cable of today, as I find it is usually one propaganda or another to exaggerate the newest absurdity, or it's the disaster tour of tragedy of a storm-quake tsunami, ubiquitous and misnamed justice or hatred passed off as righteousness. To be honorable is now dishonorable, in a world where a gecko sells insurance, a bear sells toilet paper, and a dog sells cars. Do we humans no longer believe in ourselves? But look where we turn, to nature and the animal world we once belonged to, revered and respected. Or, from Henry David Thoreau's philosophical perspective, and I quote, We forget that, like a child, man was a reader before he became a writer of what has been called the mighty alphabet of the universe long ago our forerunners knew as the eskimos still know that there is an instruction hidden in the storm but these messages like all messages in the universe are elusive and that along this journey of man some record what has happened only to them but others how they have happened to the universe This is the joy of reading a wide variety of subjects. You never know what gems of thought and ideas will help you articulate exactly what you are feeling. Imagine our lives, singular and multiple, without language. Without books, manuscripts, journals, or screenplays, and the written history that tells us of our infancy, our growth, and our heritage, along with our possible futures. We are, in and of ourselves, as astonishing a creation as the world we were born from. Within each of us, the cat capacity for genius. Yet more and more, day after day, everything we see that seems real is only a pale imitation of the world, an apparition, a ghost reality that we have conjured up in our self delusion of how the world works. Then all of a sudden, A thing happens, and you know you have encountered the uncommon, a moment that changes life with the possibility presented by a new bend in the river, to wonder in quiet and gratitude that it has been given you to see this, to be for even a moment aware of the extraordinary layered depths and profound beauty of the world to which we have blinded ourselves. From Aldo Leopold and his articulate conceptualization of a land ethic, the responsibility we humans have in stewardship of our world. This concept has not so much been lost, as simply forgotten, put aside in our constant quest for more and more of less and less. A lackadaisical, carefree disregard for minding the environmental budget and a disregard for life. Today's human in the daily horror of postmodern culture of the West is rapidly becoming the model. Emblazoned in neon is the best of the best the world has to offer. My thought is that, perhaps, as roundly discussed by many authors from the first written words to today, it seems we have again come around to viewing ourselves as centrists, separate from the other, of each other, and of nature, and although our human scope of time seems unlimited to us, we are but a mere blip on the earthly, geologic, or cosmic scale of things. Before his death in 1996, eco-philosopher Paul Shepard wrote, and I quote, In view of the enormous scope of human time and experience, perhaps mankind has unwittingly embraced a diseased era as the model of human life mr shepherd had come to view modern man as a lost and lonely refugee from the pleistocene estranged from his predatorial heritage indifferent to the creatures that had made him human we being the adolescent heirs of the natural world plundering and blundering our way to the gravest mistake of history And I quote, the most damaging blows of all are the extinctions of the so-called useless forms of life, those wild things that seem outside our economy and inimical to agriculture. We have loosed a population epidemic since men ceased to hunt and gather that is the most terrifying phenomenon of the million years of human experience. So as I continue, the decisions that each of us can make, the power of one individual, each of us is someone. And the choices we make on the individual to group levels has been impacting the evolution of our world since we first arrived. From the hunter-gatherer to the ease with which today that everything and anything is available, combined with the speeded up pace of humanity, there's just never enough time, is there? The global and cosmic non-static nature of the universe and its laws, which science will readily admit we know very little, is still slowly being unraveled. But now it's not just knowing about it, we really are unraveling it from the very core. Like the imploding star, of whose light we see billions of years beyond its death, it's time to take a really good look and a hard look at where we are in time— Geological, cosmic, and now of the days and seconds that pass by on our Gregorian calendar and our watch face. In Lauren Isley's The Hidden Teacher, he writes of his wanderings and coming upon a spider web. As many biologists, zoologists, and studiers of non human life forms often consider, what is it like to be a spider, an elephant, or a lion? Isley writes of his musings upon coming across a spider web. quote, "'Curious, I took a pencil from my pocket and touched a strand of the web. Immediately there was a response. The web, plucked by its menacing occupant, began to vibrate until it was a blur. Anything that had brushed claw or wing against that amazing snare would be thoroughly entrapped. As the vibration slowed, I could see the owner fingering her guidelines for signs of struggle.' A pencil point was an intrusion into this universe for which no precedent existed. Spider was circumscribed by spider ideas. Its universe was spider universe. All outside was irrational extraneous, at best raw material for spider. And I continue. As I proceeded on my way along the gully, like a vast impossible shadow, I realized that in the world of spider, I did not exist. I began to see that among the many universes in which the world of living creatures existed, some were large, some small, but that all, including man's, were in some way limited or finite. We were creatures of many different dimensions passing through each other's lives like ghosts through doors. This framework of thinking that only humans quest for cosmic answers of self goes back to Descartes, whose dualistic universe of absolute mind at one end and absolute matter at the other admitted nothing in between. Indeed, Descartes reasoned that since animals are not rational, they are not conscious, and since they are not conscious, they cannot even be aware of pain. Their piteous howls during the horrible experience that he had conducted on them were to him mere reflex, the unfelt expression of material reactions akin to the shrieking of a key tea kettle. But now we find, through both medical, science, psychological, and veterinarian research, and data that intriguingly intriguingly expound through any number of volumes on conservation, medical science, or the Internet, that we now know, through our studies of brain functions and mapping, chemistry in the body, that there are neurological centers that are direct connections between body and mind, assisted by the chemical receptors and triggers in the brain, blood, microflora, and biological functions of the human. Human and non-human animals. As Catherine Nicole says in Do Elephants Have Souls, the dilemma remains how to get an accurate understanding of the animal nature, if appropriate, its emotions, without imposing upon them assumptions born of distinctly human understanding of the world. The taboo against anthropomorphism exists for many reasons. First of all, we as human beings are prone to mistake the thoughts and feelings of each other, even the people we are closest to. How much more so is this a risk in speculating about members of another species? We, the human race, are masters of projection, from the teddy bears and figurines that we befriend as children, to the humanoid robots or computers, smartphones, and interact-smart TV that we may build or purchase as adults, engineered to cue us to respond to them like sentient beings. We like to feel that these inanimate objects have a reciprocal affection for us, although we always know, at some level, that they do not." This brings us to another conundrum of our modern Western science and postmodern world that is the whole concept of life is so mechanical that if you look closely, not even people are supposed to be anthropomorphized. Emotional, holistic terms such as love, sorrow, and concern have no place in an impoverished language of chemical transactions at the micro level and selection pressures at the macro. These chemical transactions and selection pressures are essential influences, but from our current knowledge of them, they are acutely inadequate to describing the subtleties of lived experience. Some cultures with a higher general estimation of animals than our Western culture may not precisely share this view or may just accept that animals have a language that is obscure to people. It is an interest, it is interesting to consider how the everyday proximity to different kinds of creatures may have affected the development of our cultural beliefs. That is, elephants, higher order primates and the like are not native to the West and thus our basic common sense of what animals can think or do calibrates at the level of, let's say, horses and dogs, which we tend to underappreciate anyway. But in Asia and Africa, where there's been much more natural interaction between people and very smart animals, and not as novelties but as members of other communities, most cultures seem to take a more expansive view of animal potential. Caitlin O'Connell Rodwell, an insect biologist, got involved with human-elephant conflict and being able to communicate Across species through simulating language, when the Namibian government hired her to attack the perennial problem of keeping elephants from raiding crops, fences, ditches, sirens, and border rows of chili peppers had all failed to protect local farmers' livelihoods or were impractical to maintain. O'Connell-Rodwell's solution was to isolate a particular elephant alarm call out of a recording of layered vocalizations and rig it up to play it back when they came too close. The reaction was astonishing. With none of the customary deliberation or signaling from a leader, they instantly flapped their ears and whooshed away. There is a story related by a Kruger park ranger during efforts to repair the fence between the Kruger and Mozambique, which resulted in a mother and baby elephant being stranded on opposite sides of the fence. Becoming very agitated as the workers approached, the ranger ranger said the cow elephant stopped, put her trunk through the cables to calm the calf, and seemed to be thinking about her next move. He said he could not prove what happened next, nor did the other rangers believe him, but this is what he saw, and I quote she talked to that kid she told him exactly what to do and without any further fuss he did he turned out away from her and the fence and went into the deep shade of a tree twenty yards away where he stood motionless becoming virtually invisible "'I knew exactly where he was, but could hardly find him again when I looked away. "'I saw her rush down to the gap and out into the road as, he, as the truck appeared. "'She raised a huge cloud of dust, stamping and blowing, "'making short charges at the vehicle, "'frightening the crew sufficiently to get them back, to back off and go away. "'And when the noise and confusion was at its height, "'the calf, in camouflage, made his move. "'He sidled over to the fence, slipped quietly through the gap, "'and went over to the wait into the cover of the succulent forest.' The ranger continued, I was certain then that the cow's entire performance had been a brilliant diversion, beautifully executed, for as soon as she was sure he had made good his escape, she ignored the truck and its documents and turned her back, sashaying in satisfaction back to join her calf in the safety of the park. It is not uncommon for those who spend their time mingling with wildlife to witness occurrences that go beyond conventional assumptions about what animals can know or do. As Katie Payne writes of a conversation she had with a senior scout from the Intaba Mangue Park in which she asked him how he speaks of events that seem to be outside normal experience, he surpri- he surprised her with a shout and a burning stare. You just tell what happened. You just tell what you saw. You must simply tell what happened, he repeated quietly as she sat there in shock. Only God knows what it means." Unpacking this remarkable exchange yields several items of note. First, there is the dynamic presence of the unknown in daily life. Second, there is the question of what to do about it. Because it is unknown does not mean that it is unnecessarily unknowable, nor that it isn't. The choice to tell about it represents a hopeful effort that it might be understood, though not a presumptive one. There is no undue effort to explain, to impose some kind of theory on it, but an openness to whatever it might reveal. But finally, on the optimistic side of understanding, there is a reminder of the awesome significance of language in the urging to tell what happened. What could be more crucial in the search for truth than this ability to translate individual experience into common comprehensibility? You just tell what happened and someone else will hear it. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. And you can call in at 1-866-472-5788 or send me an email at wildize at wildeyes.org. We'll be right back.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com w-i-l-d-i-z-e dot o-r-g streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you're listening to ellie weiss and our wild world
2: Welcome back. Um, we were, I've been talking about some ponderings and weaving together. So I'd like to continue on and just pick up where I left from the break. Um, I'd like to continue with, while we humans do understand what it means to be a better person, there are certainly parallels in the animal world. Much of what means to be a better elephant is conveyed, by example, with ear flaps, trunk movements, smell signals, and other forms of body language. Elephants and many other species vocalize prodigiously as well. Engaging in elaborate discussions is a part of everyday activity. Thus, we come again to the importance of language and the transfer of knowledge. For us, it is reading or communicating with each other. For elephants and lions, we now know that their language may be as socially complex, though not perhaps as vocally extensive, as ours. Ms. Nicole of Elephant, Do Elephants Have Souls? continues, On the other hand, as these capacities do have a bearing on the stature of the species overall, it ought to follow that other species with heightened abilities should be accorded value for those things as well. In any case, tactically speaking, one would think that sensitivity and respect for life at different levels would find themselves in common cause. We can all recall examples from human history in which people's natural sympathies towards others, whom they knew deep down to be like them, were closed off by feats of ideology, and of still more examples where the baseline of those natural sympathies left much to be desired. Our natural sympathies represent an individual kind of moral insight, to be nurtured rather than squelched wherever they appear. Without establishing equality per se, this surely applies to our relationship with animals as well. There is a wonderful quote from Henry Beston from The Outermost House, where he states, We need another and wiser and perhaps a more mystical concept of animals. Remote from universal nature and living by complicated artifice, man in civilization surveys the creatures through the glass of his knowledge and sees thereby a feather magnified and the whole image in distortion we patronize them for their incompleteness for their tragic fate of having taken form so far below ourselves and therein we err and greatly err for the animal shall not be measured by man in a world older and more complete than ours they move finished and complete gifted with extensions of the senses we have lost or never attained living by voices we shall never hear they are not brethren they are not underlings they are other nations caught with ourselves in the net of life and time Life and survival are the essence of being and reacting, that is, the ability to move around in a dynamic environment, sensing the surroundings to a degree sufficient to achieve the necessary maintenance of life and reproduction. Our genetics and our environment together create life, represented by the unerringly real challenge for biological imperatives in the cellular programming. Whether you call it creation, evolution, or destiny, and that which we call the mind, there is not a robot in the world that knows the things a puppy knows." Life, that which is genetically programmed to survive, life begets life, and it is constantly evolving, adapting, adapting and changing. Thus, so are we and our societies and our knowledge base. We are constantly shifting paradigms. It just usually takes a generation or two to actually see that the shift has happened. Five to ten years from today, we will be in as different a world as we were 20 to 50 years ago from yesterday. This brings me to another paradigm shift that is happening right down, and it is beautifully laid out in a new book called Zubiquity by Barbara Natterson Horowitz, a doctor of cardiology and psychiatry at UC Davis. Another of my favorite authors, ethologist Mark Bekoff, says, This this important book shatters barriers between disciplines and professions, a must-read for students interested in animals, evolution, and who are considering careers as biologists, ethologists, physicians, veterinarians, nurses, dentists, psychotherapists, nutritionists, and many others. Personally, I think this book is a must-read for all of us because it is so decisively shatters presumed boundaries that are keeping us from moving forward as humans and a species in connection with our non-human neighbors. As Darwin observed in The Origin of Species, we do not like to consider animals our equals, yet all of biology, the foundation of medicine itself, relies on the fact that we are animals. In fact, we share the vast majority of our DNA with them. People have long wanted to preserve a definition of humanity that keeps us on a higher and separate plane than that of other living beings around us. With the publication of The Origin of Species, Darwin gave us a new and unnerving way to conceive of ourselves in relation to animals, that man and beast are simply different branches of the same tree, rather than different forests altogether." evolution in its geological time frame is still happening but a very but at a very different tempo as humans evolve to shape the world around us this includes evolution through our chemistry and how we use discoveries through our societies and through our biosphere we are changing every living thing on an unprecedented scale some for the better but many more for the worse The book Zubiquity astounds with the crossovers between the relevance of animal health and human health and every parallel in between. Much of our recent science, especially medical and academia of the past 100 years, has focused exclusively on the 1.6% difference between humans and non-humans. Zubiquity helps us focus on that fundamental 98.4% that we share with other life forms, from the rudimentary gut flora and bacteria to the complex biological functions and facets of our bodies and brains, thus leading us to a better understanding of the other possibilities between species that we share, such as emotions, diseases, stresses, and behaviors under similar circumstances think about what this means Evolution doesn't just happen over huge numbers of generations or millions of years. It can happen to you or me or any animal within our own lifetimes. The changes we are causing to our DNA through our chemical and processing of our food means that the genes we pass on to our children are different from the ones we inherited, what we pass on to our future and what we retain from our ancient past. Zubiquity encourages us to look away for a moment from the ob- obvious narrow range of differences and embrace the many enormous similarities. This brings us to the age-old debate of nature versus nurture. Exactly what is that? What turns on and off our genetic code? I think that today we need to also redefine more profoundly what we mean and include in both the words and the fundamentals of what is nature and nurture to include our society, culture, and environmental factors. We are learning, as in speaking of the abundance and astonishing processes of life, there is a wonderful book by Sean B. Carroll, Endless Forms Most Beautiful, The New Science of Evo Devo, that we are Combination of both nature and nurture, that they are not just as inseparable as we may have previously thought. Nature is not just a romanticized version of the home environment on the societal scale, but home, in capitals, on an earthly environmental scale, and nurturing contains just about all the behaviors and diseases that we present, not only to the adolescent through our cultural mores, but through to the unborn child and what the mother and father have been exposed to chemically that affected genetically and the cues both socially and environmentally and chemically that switch on and off our genes at critical junctures this is what is meant by growth on fundamental health and societal levels we've evolved to be lazy we no longer have to work for our food as hunter gatherers most of us in the postmodern Western world are taught working for the money a more intellectual enterprise than physical labor to pay for our food and survival Thus, our entire physical abilities have changed, as we have everything at our fingertips with ease. Free time, dense calories, and empty calories are now so readily accessible in a small amount of forage that we do not use our bodies to make use of the hoarded calories. This brings to question what behaviors are similar and found in the wild. Are their lives as affected as ours due to environmental and chemical stressors Stressors as we industrialize and monetize our food processing? How will we ever unravel these interconnected weavings of natural versus the man made as we so whimsically go about approving such things as DDT, toxic plastics, air quality controls, and now we can add in climate change, biodiversity loss, changing or diminished habitats, industrialized food processing, and the widespread use of antibiotics? We can conclusively show through research and studies, such as that by WildEyes' grantee, Caracal Biodiversity Center, that even Even in wild populations of animals distant from human settlements, those vector species, those that cross between various and animal-human boundaries environments, are showing resistance to a wide range of antibiotics. As George Schaller, recognized by many as the world's preeminent field biologist studying wildlife through Asia, South America, and Africa, wrote in summing up his Serengeti experiences... Now, in our unheeding rush to conquer our environment, we are in danger of destroying the roots of our nature, the wilderness that saw the whole of our evolutionary history. Perhaps, as we transcend our past, adapting to new patterns of culture and becoming less human by today's standards, the wilderness will become superfluous. But, for the present, the salvation of our humanity lies in the spirit of such areas as as the Serengeti, where man can renew his ancient ties and ponder his uncertain destiny. What all this is doing is leading us to revise our totality of what is involved in defining our health and wealth, in terms of the economic monetized version and a spiritual definition, and a balance or harmony that must be found to bridge them together. This is a shift that I speak of when I talk about redefining our benchmark of health and wealth. To demonetize the current standing characterization... I understand that's not going away, but if we come at it from the perspective that as long as we have a planet with renewable resources, we will be healthy, and that makes us rich and wealthy in terms of society and resources, we can begin to include the tremendous strides we have made over the past several generations of discovery, biological, medical, social, and global. In Zubiquity, Dr. Horowitz began an astonishing journey of the question posed, shouldn't human and veterinary doctors be partnering along with wildlife biologists in the field, the lab, and the clinic? And further, that such collaborations could lead to monumental discoveries for the care and knowledge of many species, species, and even to cures. Why don't human and animal docs work together more collaborative, collaboratively? That's when she went down the history trail and learned that they used to. Let's go all the way back to when the local vet may have been the only doc around in the original or rural agriculture and livestock farms. Before the urbanization of our culture put us into cities where we began to focus only on the people and specialized medicine just for us. And we no longer relied on farm and livestock animals to make a living. Add in the switch to motorized vehicles pushing animals out of our daily lives, which relegated veterinarians and their institutions to the more rural areas while the urban areas emerged as the seat of academic medical centers to the wealthier clientele. This elitism led to specialization of human issues, and depending on what part of the body was the focus, a hierarchy was created, along with some arrogance and the competitive, lucrative, procedure-driven human-based needs and specialties sitting at the top, with a chasm of perhaps some disdain for the mere animal docs. I'll bet it would surprise you to know that vet school is now harder to get into than med school, Furthermore, with collaborations between animal and human docs, what we're learning is that what we'd assume to be uniquely human diseases have their correlations and parallels in the rest of our living world. For example, through paleontology and forensic veterinary medicine, we learn that cancer has struck and killed its victims for at least 70 million years. A term a friend of mine told me recently is a a new word: diabetesity, diabetes and obesity put together, which seem to be the main human killer these days. A legacy of our changing diet from whole food to a fast food culture, leading to early childhood diseases and a whole host of eating disorders, along with other food-related diseases, including heart failure and some cancers. The chemicals we've added to process and store our food that have not been banned, let alone labeled, which are still in the system, such as those in plastics and fossil fuels that we use in our everyday lives. You can watch the film Bag It!, to learn more, have been directly linked to endocrine changes in the human body to gender neutrality. Over the past 25 years and how these are affecting our evolution and our genetic codes and what we are passing on to each other, to future generations, and through to our wild cousins in nature, how is this shifting our culture is still largely unknown. Where you live, the work you do, the stress you feel can change how your genes are expressed. This adds to our new definition of nature versus nurture. What we call feelings or emotions are not airy, intangible thought vapors that emanate or alike from our brains. Emotions have a biological basis that arise from an intricate interplay of nerves and chemicals in the brain, and like other biological traits that can be retained or rejected by natural selection. We have come a long way from the days since we thought we knew that animals and babies feel no pain, carry no emotions, or do not have similar diseases to humans. We know now that they do. For people, we call it emotion. For animals, we call it survival circuits. Really, it's a matter of semantics. For we also know that how animal experiences the world cannot be fully known to a human being. Randolph Ness, University of Michigan psychiatrist and leader of the growing field of evolutionary medicine, put it this way. Emotions shaped by natural selection adjust physiological and behavioral responses to take advantage of opportunities and to cope with threats that have recurred over the course of evolution. Emotions influence behavior and ultimately fitness. Dr. Horowitz further demonstrates that brain-rewarding behaviors lead to increased or decreasing survival rates, allow us to rethink addictions like video gaming and social networking, compare our irresistible urges to check our emails, smartphones, Twitter, and Facebook, have profoundly combined and replaced the things that matter most to animals, the competitive need to survive, a social network, access to mates, and information about threats. And like addictions, these activities often provide the brain chemical spurts that give us the feeling of contentment without the inconvenience of having to physically survive the threat of predation or working for our food as william stotzenberg writes in his book where the wild things were the ecology of big predators remains the most intractable discipline in the most complex of all sciences its subjects are hard to find and harder yet to hold still for study The big predators are not only inherently rare, as ordained by their tiny perch at the top of the food pyramid, but fashionably rare at the hands of a modern human society that slaughters them blatantly out of our contempt and obliquely through the wholesale destruction of their homes and livelihoods. And therein lies one confounding variable that inescapably pervades our human systematic inquiry. Over the thousands of millennia that our own lineage has spent in the company of killing beasts, competing with them for food and running from them as food, the great meat-eaters have quite naturally etched themselves into the human persona. Long before people had perfected the art of exterminating their fellow predators, we were worshipping them. Conservation biologist David Wilcove writes, What has not already been decided for the future of big carnivores will very soon be decided by us. Do we want them back? If not, can we say for sure what their future will be? As to the trickle-down consequences to come, that is something only time will tell. Life will probably not come crashing to a halt for the lack of big man-eating beasts, at least not in the ways that we're yet able to clearly define. It is an ecolog- But is it an ecological impact we can survive? Wilcox says he is- suspects that people in the world could not care less if all pre- large predators vanish. There are few of us who think they are beautiful, interesting, and essential to natural ecological processes and part of our natural heritage, but we are a distinct minority. Quote, for all the lip service and heartfelt longings to see the fierce beasts return, there are often remains, unspoken, the reflexive shudder of relief that they are securely caged, buried, or banished to the hinterlands. So what must those who do live in the hinterlands where these predatory, carnivorous, maddening eating beasts are not caged, but live in your backyard? It seems that now we're headed into the industrialization and monetization of our wildlife and resources, which has both an upside and a downside. And I realize that i mostly focus, and we see this from the downside, and by that I mean the human use of animal parts and the related illegal trade, trafficking, and crime, similar to one hears about without the drug wars. Only these are wildlife wars. One would hope the common refrain of all the literature is a rousing alarm on behalf of these friends, totems, property, and sometimes foes with whom we share the earth, who even with their great strength have patiently endured all kinds of violations from us, and now depend on our goodwill to save them. But in the long run, that message is no match for the economic environmental forces arrayed against them today. If not their survival, then at least their freedom. All of the other land giants have already met their appointments at the end of the world. The elephants will not have the space to just be who they are forever as we go about farming them into supply human demands for superstition, traditional medicine, science, and greed. The scientific enterprise, that special activity of human beings, brings us proof of abilities and tools to unriddle the life of animals. But scientific language simply breaks down in describing who they are, as does not as the, does the language of beauty or love, leaving us at the edge of vast fields of signals out of our ordinary range. Listen with your ears, your eyes, your heart your mind and your soul for the message from our animal kin as improbable as life itself different and yet the same whether there are millions or just one what does it mean that there is such a thing as an elephant we are not alone so in terms of the monetization of our wildlife, I have two terms. Uh, I'm going to call it hard industrialization and soft industrialization. The hard industrialization, industrialization or physical industrialization, industrialization, the breeding of species specifically for use as food or trophy to market demands, as opposed to soft industrialization of wild drive, wildlife through wild documentaries, TV, and nature shows. Shows This kind of industrialization, viewing and exposure of the incredible variety of species we have living amongst us, is so critical to highlight to even us as we sit in our living rooms with our remote control and our pizza. It takes us to a place where some may never be able to go physically and emotionally and mentally, a mini-vacation to our astonishing world. As we industrialize our food and processing centers, such as beef and dairy cattle or chickens and pigs, we are now entering a stage of industrializing our wildlife, lions for canned hunting and to supply the Asian medicinal bone trade, as wild tigers have pretty much disappeared, to the breeding of rhino for their horns, which is an illegal, illicit trade with a strong advocacy to legalize in order to save the species. Species. But hang on here a minute. Should we be doing this? Should we be trading, exploiting, industrializing, and monetizing our wild, non-human beings for our purposes? And I'll be right back with some answers to that after the break. If you'd like to call in, please call 1-866-472-5788. The
1: Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up?
1: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
2: And welcome back. Right before the break, I asked an interesting question. Should we be trading, exploiting, industrializing, and monetizing our wild non-human beings for our purposes? Today, with all we have learned about so many of the other mammals we live with, their intelligence, their social lives, the morality, shall we say, do we, like the slavers of old, have the ownership of everything else on earth to use at our whim and command to decide who and what lives and dies and to use the resources as we eat ourselves alive? What we have to decide as one kind of being to others is the rightness or wrongness of our acts as only we can. Shall we be the instigators, the ones to raise awareness and be the architects of a conservation mindset, rather than simply the economic beneficiaries? It is a very it is very costly in terms of management of wildlife, habitat, security, and security of people from the damage wildlife can do. We are dealing with two separate yet connected problems. How do we want to live with wildlife? Are we right in saying that we can economically benefit from their use? Is it right that we should even think of doing so? To another being whose social and emotional lives are possibly more complex or at least equal to ours and if we are to economically use or benefit from the trade in live beings such as elephants, rhinos and lions and others. Our industrialization and monetizing of wildlife poses such questions, and the debate rages on, while in the meantime the elephant and rhino are the silent victims. Nature is not kind, thus we humans continuously attempt to control it for ourselves, sometimes good, most times full of unintended consequences. So the real question is, what kind of planet do we want, and who will we choose to allow to live with us, and how, and more importantly, Why? By that I mean the purpose we would designate as to the usefulness of everything around us. The folks who do live with carnivores and other possibly problematic relationships with wildlife on a daily basis live mostly in underdeveloped or protected areas of our world where there are large swaths of wilderness and those who must live with it in concert or conflict often do not directly benefit from the soft industrialization of wildlife and its its connected revenues for economic or social security. The monetized economic abundance of soft exports benefit of the trickle-down, but it is a convoluted Rather than a direct exchange, it goes through the safari tour camp operator and the national park or federal system or the outdoor sporting goods versus the direct fees procured by the sustainable or utilization of wildlife let's call it hunting or food. This is the niche the NGOs, such as Wild Eyes try to fill and uh, complete that gap and build a bridge so that there is a direct connection between that place in the wild that means sanctuary where we people love to go when our world just gets to be too much. And we can do this physically or through the television in the internet or traveling there to directly support your non-consumptive use of nature. There isn't a clear channel to nature lovers here in the West that show where their money is going or even how to understand the politics and policies that guide how our wildlife and wilderness are being used, protected or in some cases willfully destroyed. As we are yet so young a species of modern man that our science and technology are just opening the doors to the magnificence that surrounds us, while at the same time we are losing it at a rate that is rapidly outpacing our wisdom to use the tools we have created. How can we ever replicate Earth as a model if there is no Earth to stand on? The power of one in redefining our health and wealth can spread like a virus, a good virus, from operating through social dis ease to social goodwill and reinforcement. Bring our lives back to earth first, which will have a huge impact on our mental, emotional, social, and physical health and well being. This takes education, paying attention, being aware, and reading. If we don't look outside through the written world and social consensus, challenge the norms, then we could well still be saying, The world is flat and the sun revolves around us. So what we have to decide as one being to others is the ethical and moral rightness or wrongness of our acts inside of all the facts that we have learned and the other emotional, sympathetic and parallel lives that live in the wild. We are dealing with two separate yet connected problems. With all the changes in our social and physical structures and systems, this is fundamentally changing our social focus. What we teach our children is important. What we pass on genetically, environmentally, and the endless forms most beautiful that surround us, will it be consumption to the end or nurturing ourselves in our only place to live? We are interacting with each other daily, and children growing up in the world they will be responsible for, living in, and making decisions about. This is the astonishing life of our world and the power of one. It is all interconnected, all the time, everywhere. We've seen many times over the power of one amazing animal or one amazing person to galvanize a country. We need to help translate this power of the ambassador to all our brethren in the world and the wild, where most of us cannot see it, touch it, or photograph. In our hurry to advance and evolve on our ever-widening merry-go-round of nihilism, destruction, and war, are we going to only find our brave new world by being the architects of destroying the current one? We are facing a new frontier, and it's going to take passionate individuals with a thirst for seeing the possibilities, like the first explorers we read about and our history that has helped bring us to where we are. This is going to help lead us into reimagining ourselves and the future. Whether you call it God, creation, spirit, soul, destiny, or instinct, it is life. We all have a program running, only now we are also the programmers. We can be silent bystanders or answer the siren call to a renaissance of what it means to be human and the legacy of humanity. Everything has, does, and must evolve. Stasis and inflexibility do not survive. Adaptation is the saving grace of life. So look at it this way. It's going to be somebody, which means it could just as well be you and me. The first step toward a solution is recognizing that there is a problem, but the upside is there are a lot of us to work with. Throughout history, and yes, even today, there will always shine the lights of singular individuals who have searched beyond the boundaries of their day for what's out there just over the far horizon, leading the way for others to follow. Let's not forget just how astonishing our world is and that everyone is someone We, this amazing complex computer circuitry of brain tissue and the ghostly software that runs it, we are the explorers leading to our future. Somewhere, anywhere on earth, anyone has the unbounded possibilities to alter our course at every imaginable level of existence. In contrast to our natural wonders, we have created a feast of escapes from the harsh realities of our industrialized world. But rather than take that mechanical wonder of speed, the motorized jaguar, into the unknown and untested breach of nature, we instead choose the wilds of Las Vegas, New York, or Monaco, into the forest of steel amongst the canopy of pulsing lights and water to fill the swimming pools rather than the desert, and where the man-made architecture promises that money is bliss and that anything can be bought or at least rented while entertained by celebrity royalty as we numb ourselves silly from the hectic pace of life we've created into a false escape that requires more and more resources to retain what the natural world has to offer us. So it is our decision. We have a choice, and each of us can make that choice. It is our wild world. It is our future, and we can change that right now. So, if you'd like to learn more about Wild Eyes, please visit our website at www.wildeyes.org. I always enjoy hearing from you via email at wild.wildeyes.org. You can follow along with us on Facebook and Twitter, and discussion groups on LinkedIn. After all, what this show is about is connecting with you, my dear listener, and uh, creating connections that will help bring us to the next stage and a new era of who we want to be. And by we, I mean not only our human community, but the decisions we will make about every other living creature that lives with us all the other earthlings so thank you for tuning in and listening to our wild world this is ellie weiss and i'll be back again next week
1: thank you again for joining us this week be sure to tune in next monday at 11 a.m eastern time 8 a.m pacific time for another edition of our wild world with your host ellie weiss on the voice america variety channel Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.